Chapter Seven of In the High Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellie. In the High Valley by Susan Coolidge. Chapter Seven: Thorns and Roses. Geoff said Clover as they sat at dinner two days later. Couldn't we start early when we go in tomorrow to meet Rose and have the morning at St. Helens? There are quite a lot of little errands to be done, and it's a long time since we saw Poppy or the Hopes. Just as early as you like, replied her husband. It's a free day, and I'm quite at your service. So they breakfasted at a quarter before six, and by a quarter past were on the way to St. Helens, passing, as Clover remarked, through three zones of temperature, for it was crisply cold when they set out, temperately cool at the lower end of the Ute Pass, and blazing hot on the sandy plain. We certainly do get a lot of climate for our money out here, observed Geoff. They reached the town a little before ten, and went first of all to see Mrs. Marsh, for whom Clover had brought a basket of fresh eggs. She never entered that house without being sharply carried back to former days, and made to feel that the intervening time was dreamy and unreal, so absolutely unchanged was it. There was the rickety piazza on which she and Phil had so often sat, and the bare and home-like parlor, the rocking chairs swinging all at once, timed as it were to an accompaniment of coughs but the occupants were not the same many sets of invalids had succeeded each other at mrs marsh's since those old days still the general effect was precisely similar mrs marsh who only was unchanged gave them a warm welcome grateful little clover never had forgotten the many kindnesses shown to her and phil and requited them in every way that was in her power more than once when mrs marsh was poorly or overtired she had carried her off to the high valley for a rest, and she had never failed to pay her a visit whenever she spent the day at St. Helens. The next call was at the Hope's. They found Mrs. Hope darning stockings on the back piazza, which commanded a view of the mountain range. She always claimed the entire credit of Clover's match, declaring that if she had not matronized her out to the valley and introduced her and Geoff to each other, they would never have met. Her droll airs of proprietorship over their happiness were infinitely amusing to Clover. I think we should have got at each other somehow, even if you had not been in existence, she told her friend. Marriage is a maid in heaven, as we all know. Nobody could have prevented ours. My dear, that is where you are mistaken. Nothing is easier than to prevent marriages. A mere straw will do it. Look at the countless old maids all over the world and probably nearly every one of them came within half an inch of perfect happiness, and just missed it. No, depend upon it. There is nothing like a wise, judicious, discriminating friend at such junctures to help matters along. You may thank me that Geoff isn't at this moment wedded to some stiff-necked British maiden, and you eating your head off in single blessedness at Burnet. Rubbish, said Clover. Neither of us is capable of it. But Mrs. Hope stuck to her convictions. She was delighted to see them, as she always was, and no less the bottle of beautiful cream, the basket full of fresh lettuces, and the bunch of mariposa lilies which they had brought. Clover never went into St. Helens empty-handed. Here they took luncheon number one, consisting of sponge-cake and claret-cup, partaken of while gazing across at Cheyenne Mountain, which was at one of its most beautiful moments, all aerial blue, streaked with sharp sunshine at the summit. It was the one effect of the high valley, Clover thought, that it gave no glimpse of Cheyenne. Luncheon number two came a little later with Mary and Chase, whom everyone still called Poppy, from preference and long habit. 
She was perfectly well now, but she and her family had grown so fond of St. Helens that there was no longer any talk of her going back to the East. She had just had some beautiful California plums sent her by an admirer, and insisted on Clover's eating them, with an accompaniment of biscuits and natural soda water. "'I want you and Alice Perham to come out next week for two nights,' said Clover, while engaged in disagreeable occupation. "'My friend Mrs. Brown arrives today, and she is by far the greatest treat we have ever had to offer to any one since we lived in the valley. You will delight in her, I know.' Could you come on Monday in the stage to the Ute Hotel, if we sent the carryall over to meet you? Why, of course, I never have any engagements when a chance comes for going to the dear valley, and Alice has none, I am pretty sure. It will be perfectly delightful. Clover, you are an angel, the angel of the Pentestamen, I mean to call you, glancing at the great sheaf of purple and white flowers which Clover had brought. It's a very good name. As for Elsie, she is our lady of raspberries. I never saw such beauties as she fetched in week before last. Some very multifarious shopping for the two households followed, and by that time it was two o'clock, and they were quite ready for luncheon number three, soup and sandwiches procured at the restaurant. They were just coming away when an open carriage passed them, silk-lined, with a crest on the panel, jingling curbed chains and silver-plated harnesses, all after the latest modern fashion, and drawn by a pair of fine grey horses, Inside was a young man who returned a stiff bow to Clover's salutation, and a gorgeously gowned young lady with a rather handsome face. "'Mr. and Mrs. Serber Wade, I declare,' observed Geoffrey. "'I heard that they were expected.' "'Yes, Mrs. Wade is so pleased to have them come for the summer. We must go and call some day, Geoff, when I happen to have on my best bonnet. Do you think we ought to ask them out to the valley?' "'That's just as you please. I don't mind if he doesn't.' "'What fine horses! Aren't you conscious of a little qualm of regret, Clover?' "'What for? I don't know what you mean. Don't be absurd,' was all the reply he received, or in fact deserved. And now it was time to go to the train. The minutes seemed long while they waited, but presently came the well-known shriek and rumble, and there was Rose herself, dimpled and smiling at the window, looking not a bit older than on the day of Katie's wedding seven years before. There was little Rose, too but she was by no means as unchanged as her mother, and certainly no longer little, surprisingly tall on the contrary, with her golden hair grown brown and braided in a pigtail, actually a pigtail. She had the same bloom and serenity, however, and the same sedate, investigating look in her eyes. There was Mr. Brown, too, but he was a brief joy, for there was only time to shake hands and exchange dates and promises of return before the train started and bore him away toward Pueblo. Now, said Rose, who seemed quite unquenched by her three days of travel, don't let's utter one word till we are in the carriage, and then don't let's stop one moment for two weeks. In the first place, she began, as the carryall mounting the hill turned into Monument Avenue, where numbers of new houses had been built of late years, Queen Anne cottages in brick and stone, timber and concrete, with here and there a more ambitious villa of pink granite, all surrounded with lawns and rosaries, and vine-hung verandas and tinkling fountains. In the first place, I wished to learn where all these people and houses come from. I was told that you lived in a lodge in the wilderness, but though I see plenty of lodges, the wilderness seems wanting. Is this really an infant settlement? It really is. That is, it hasn't come of age yet, being not quite twenty-one years old. Oh, you have no notion about our western towns, Rose. They are born and grown up all in a minute, like Hercules strangling the snakes in his cradle. I don't wonder at all that you are surprised. Surprise doesn't express it. Flabbergasted, though low, comes nearer my meaning. 
I have been breathless since we left Albany. First there was that enormous Chicago, which knocked me all of a heap, then Denver, and that enchanting ride over the divide, and now this. Never did I see such flowers or such colored rocks. Never did any one breathe such air. It sweeps all the dust and fatigue out of one in a minute. Boston seems quite small and dull in comparison, doesn't it, Roslyn? It isn't so big, but I love it the most, replied that small person from the front seat, where she sat soberly taking all things in. Mama, Uncle Geoff says I may drive when we get to the foot of a long hill where we are just coming to. You won't be afraid, will you? No, not if Uncle Geoff will keep his eye on the reins and stand ready to seize them if the horses begin to run. Rose just expresses my feelings, she continued, but this is as beautiful as it is big. What is the name of that enchanting mountain over there? Cheyenne? Why, yes, that is the one that you used to write about in your letters when you first came out, I remember. It never made much impression on me. Mountains never seem high in letters somehow, but now I don't wonder. It is the loveliest thing I ever saw. Clover was much pleased at Rose's appreciation of her favorite mountains, and also with the intelligent way in which she noted everything they passed. Her eyes were as quick as her tongue, chattering all the time. She had missed nothing of interest. The poppy-strewn plain, the great levels of Mesa delighted her, so did the wide stretches of blue distance, and she screamed with joy at the orange and red pinnacles in Odin's garden. It is a land of wonders, she declared. When I think how all my life I have been content to amble across the common and down Winter Street to Hovis, and now and then by way of adventure take the car to the Black Bay, and that I felt all the while as if forgetting the cream and pick of everything, I am astonished at my own stupidity. Rose, aren't you glad I didn't let you catch whooping cough from Margaret Lynn? You were bent on doing it, you remember? If I had given you your way, we should not be here now. Rose only smiled in reply. She was used to her little mother's vagaries and treated them in general with an indulgent inattention. The sun was quite gone from the ravines, but still lingered on the snow-powdered peaks above, when the carriage climbed the last steep zigzag and drew up before the hut, whose upper windows glinted with the waning light. Rose looked about her and drew a long breath of surprise and pleasure. It isn't a bit like what I thought it would be, she said, but it's heaps and heaps more beautiful. I simply put it at the head of all the places I ever saw. Then Elsie came running on the porch and Rose jumped out into her arms. I thank the goodness and the grace that on my birth has smiled and brought me to this blessed place, a happy Boston child. She cried, hugging Elsie rapturously. You dear thing, how well you look! and how perfect it is all up here. And this is Mr. Page, whom I have known all about ever since the hills over days. And this is dear little Geoff. Clover, his eyes are exactly like yours. And where's your baby, Elsie? Little wretch, she would go to sleep. I told her you were coming, and did all I could, short of pinching, to keep her awake, sang in repeated verses, and danced her up and down, but it was all of no use. She would put her knuckles in her eyes and whimper and fret, and at last I had to give in. Babies are perfectly unmanageable when they are sleepy. Most of us are. It's just as well. I can't half take in as it is. It is much better to keep something for tomorrow. The drive was perfect, and the valley is twice as beautiful as I expected it to be. And now I want to go into the house. Elsie had devoted her day to setting forth the hut to advantage. She and Roxy had been to the very top of the East Canyon for flowers, and they returned loaded with spoil. Bunches of coreopsis and vermilion tipped painter's brush adorned the chimney piece. Tall spikes of yucca rose from an Indian chair in one corner of the room, and a splendid sheaf of yellow columbines from another, 
Fresh Kinnickinnick was looped and frizzed about the pictures, and on the dining table stood, most beautiful and fragile of all, a bowlful of mariposa lilies, the delicate, lilac trick bells poised on stems, so slender that the fairy shapes seemed to float in air, supported at their own sweet will. There were roses, too, and fragrant little knots of heliotrope and mignonette. With these, Rose was familiar, the wild flowers were all new to her. She ran from waist to waist in a rapture. They could scarcely get her upstairs to take off her things. Such a bright evening followed. Clover declared that she had not laughed so much in all the seven years since they parted. Rose seemed to fit at once and perfectly into the life of the place, while at the same time she brought the breath of her own more varied and different life to freshen and widen it. They all agreed that they never had a visitor who gave them so much and enjoyed so much. She and Geoffrey made friends at once, greatly to Clover's delight, and Clarence took to her in a manner astonishing to his wife, for he was apt to issue strangers and escape them when he could. They all woke in the morning to a sense of holiday. Boys, said Elsie at breakfast, this isn't at all a common everyday day, and I don't want to do everyday things in it. I want something new and unusual to happen. Can't you abjure this wretched beast of yours for once, and come with us to that sweet little canyon at the far end of the Ute, where we went the summer after I was married? We want to show it to Rose, and the weather is simply perfect. Yes, if you'll give us half an hour or so to ride up and speak to Manuel. All right. It will take at least as long as that to get ready. So Chulu hastily broiled chickens and filled bottles with coffee and cream, and by half-past nine they were off, children and all, some on horseback and some in the carryall with the baskets, to Elsie's sweet little canyon, over which Pike's Peak rose in lonely majesty like a sentinel at an outpost, and where flowers grew so thickly that, as Rose wrote her husband, it was harder to find the in-betweens than the blossoms. They came back, tired, hungry, and happy, just at nightfall. So it was not till the second day that Rose met the youngs, about whom her curiosity was considerably excited. It seemed so odd, she said, to have only neighbors, and it made them of so much consequence. They had been asked to dinner to meet Rose, which was a very formal and festive invitation for the High Valley, though the dinner must perforce be much as usual, and the party was inevitably the same. Imogen felt that it was an occasion, and wishing to do credit to it, she unpacked a gown which had not seen the light before since her arrival, and which had done duty as a dinner dress for two or three years at Bidford. It was a light blue muslin de laine, made with a half-high top and elbow sleeves, and trimmed with cheap lace. A necklace of round coral beads adorned her throat, and a comb of the same material her hair, which was done up in a series of wonderful loops filleted with narrow blue ribbons. She carried a pink fan. Lionel, who liked bright colors, was charmed at the effect, and altogether she set out in good spirits for the walk down the path, though she was prepared to be afraid of Rose, of whose brilliancy she had heard a little too much to make the idea of meeting her quite comfortable. The party had just gathered in the sitting-room as they entered. Clover and Elsie were in pretty cotton dresses as usual, and Rose, following their lead, had put on what at home she would have considered a morning gown, of linen lawn white with tiny bunches of forget-me-nots scattered over it, and a chapot of lace and blue ribbon. This toilet seemed unduly simple to Imogen, who said within herself complacently, There's one thing the Americans don't seem to understand, and that is the difference between common dressing and a regular dinner dress. Preening herself the while in the sky-blue muslin de laine, and quite unconscious that Rose was inwardly remarking, My, where did she get that gown? I never saw anything like it. It must have been made for Mrs. Noah, some years before the ark, and her hair. 
just the arc style too and calculated to frighten the animals into good behavior and obedience during the bad weather well i put it at the head of all extraordinary things i ever saw it is just as well on the whole that people are not able to read each other's thoughts in society you have only just come to america here said rose taking a chair near imogen do you begin to feel at home yet oh pretty well for that i don't fancy that one ever gets to be quite at home anywhere out of their own country it's very different over here from england of course yes but some parts of america are more different than some other parts you haven't seen much of us yet no but all the parts i've seen seemed very much alike the high valley and new york for example oh i wasn't thinking of new york i mean the plains and mountains and western towns i didn't stop at any of them of course but seen from the railway they all look pretty much the same wooden houses you know and all that what astonished us most was the distance said rose of course we all learned from our maps when we were at school just how far it is across the continent but i never realized it in the least till i saw it it seemed so wonderful to go on day after day and never get to the end only about half way to the end put in clover the question of distance is a great surprise and if it perplexes you rose it isn't wonderful that it should perplex foreigners do you recollect that englishman Geoff, whom we met at the table d'hote at lombary when we were in wales and who accounted for the charleston earthquake by saying that he supposed it had something to do with those hot springs close by what hot springs did he mean i am sure you would never guess unless i told you the hot springs in the yellowstone park to be sure simply those and nothing more and when i explained that charleston and the yellowstone park were about as distant from each other as siberia and the place we were in he only started and remarked oh i think you must be mistaken and are they so far apart then asked imogen innocently oh moggy moggy what were your geography teachers thinking about cried her brother it seems sometimes as if america were entirely left out of the maps used in english schools lionel said his sister how can you say such things it isn't at all but of course we learned more about the important countries imogen spoke quite artlessly she had no intention of being rude great scott muttered clarence under his breath while rose flashed a look at clover of course she said sweetly burma and afghanistan and new zealand and the congo states would naturally interest you more large heathen populations to christianize and exterminate there is nothing like fire and sword to establish a bond oh i didn't mean that of course america is much larger than those countries plenty of us such as we are quoted the wicked rose and pretty good what there is of us added clover glad at the appearance of dinner just then to create a diversion that's quite a dreadful little person remarked rose as they stood at the doorway two hours later watching the guests walk up the trail under the light of the glorious full moon her mind is just one inch across you keep falling off the edge and hurting yourself it is said that she should be your only neighbor i don't seem to like her a bit and i predict that you will yet have some dreadful sort of a row with her clovy indeed i shall not nothing of the kind she is really a good little thing at bottom this angularity and stiffness that you object is chiefly manner wait till she has been here long enough to learn the ways and wake up and you will like her i'll wait said rose dryly how much time should you say would be necessary clover a hundred years i should think it would take at least as long as that lionel is a dear fellow we are all very fond of him i can understand your being fond of him easily enough imogen what a name for just a kind of girl image it ought to be what a figure of fun she was in that awful blue gown 
the two weeks of Rosie's visit sped only too rapidly. There was so much that they wanted to show her, and there were so many people whom they wanted her to see, and so many people who, as soon as they saw her, became urgent that she should do this and that with them, that life soon became a tangle of impossibilities. Rose was one of those charmers that cannot be hit. She had been a belle all her days, and she would be so till she died of old age, as Elsie told her. Her friends of the High Valley gloried in her success, but all the time they had a private longing to keep her more to themselves, as one retires with two or three to enjoy a choice dainty of which there is not enough to go around in a larger party. They took her to the Cheyenne Canyons, and to the top of Pike's Peak. They carried her over the Marshall Pass, and to many smaller places less known to fame, but no less charming in their way. Invitations poured in from St. Helens, to lunch, to dinner, to afternoon teas, but of these Rose would none. She could lunch and dine in Boston, she declared, but she might never come to Colorado again, and what she thirsted for was canyons, and not less than one a day would content her insatiable appetite for them. But though she would not go to St. Helens, St. Helens in a measure came to her. Mary and Chase and Alice made their promised visit. Dr. and Mrs. Hope came out more than once, and Phil continually, while smart Bostonians, whom Clover had never heard of, turned up at Canyon Creek and the Ute Valley, and drove over to call, having heard that Mrs. Deniston Brown was staying there. The High Valley became used to the roll of wheels and the tramp of horses' feet, and for the moment seemed a sociable, accessible sort of place, to which it was a matter of course that people should repair. It was oddly different from the customary order of things, but the change was enlivening, and everybody enjoyed it, with one exception. This exception was Imogen Young. She was urged to join some of the excursions made by her friends below, but on one excuse or another she refused. She felt shy and left out, where all the rest were so well acquainted and so thoroughly at ease, and preferred to remain at home. But all the same, to have the others so gay and busy gave her a sense of loneliness and separation, which was painful to bear. Clover tried more than once to persuade her out of her solitary mood, but she was much too occupied herself and too absorbed to take much time for coaxing reluctant guests, and the others dispensed with her company quite easily. In fact, they were too busy to notice her absence much or ask questions. So the fortnight which passed so quickly and brilliantly at the hut, and was always afterward alluded to as the delightful time when Rose was here, was anything but delightful at the hutlet, where poor Imogen was homesick and forlorn feeling left alone on one side of all the pleasant things, scarcely realizing that it was her own choice and doing, and wishing herself back in Devonshire. Lyon seems to be quite taken up with these people, and that Mrs. Brown, she reflected. He is always going off with them to one place or another. I might as well be back in Bidford for all the use I am to him. This was unjust, for Lionel was anxious and worried over his sister's depressed looks, and indisposition to share in the pleasures that were going on. But Imogen just then saw things through a gloomy medium, and not quite as they were. She felt dull and heavy-hearted, and did not seem able to rouse herself from her lassitude and weariness. Out of the whole party, no one was so perfectly pleased with her surroundings as the smaller Rose. Everything seemed to suit the little maid exactly. She made a delightful playfellow for the babies, telling them fairy stories by the dozen, teaching them new games, and washing and dressing Philida with all the gravity and decorum of an old nurse. They followed her about, like two little dogs, and never left her side for a moment, if they could possibly help it. It was all fish that came to her happy little net, whether it was playing with little Geoff, going on excursions with the elders, scrambling up the steep side canyons under Phil's escort in search of flowers and curiosities, or riding sober old Marigold to the upper valley, as she was sometimes allowed to do. The only cloud in her perfect satisfaction was that she must some day go away, 
It won't be very pleasant when I get back to Boston and don't have anything to do but just walk down Pickney Street with Mary Ann to school and slide a little bit on the common when the snow comes and there aren't any big boys about. Will it, Mamma? she said disconsolately. I shan't feel as if it were a great deal, I think. I'm afraid the High Valley is a poor preparation for West Cedar Street, laughed Rose. It will seem a limited career for both of us at first, but cheer up, Poppet. I'm going to put you in a dancing class this winter, and very likely at Christmas time Papa will treat us both to moral drama. There are consolations, even in Boston. That, even in Boston, is the greatest compliment the High Valley ever received, said Clover, who happened to be within hearing. Such a moment will never come to it again. And now the last day came, as last days will. Mr. Brown returned from Mexico with forty-eight hours to spare for enjoyment, which interval they employed in showing him the two things that Rose loved most, namely the High Valley from top to bottom, and the North Cheyenne Canyon. The last luncheon was taken at Mrs. Hope's, who collected a few choice spirits in honor of the occasion, and then they all took the roses to the train, and sent them off loaded with fruit and flowers. Miss Young was extraordinarily queer and dismal last night, said Rose to Clover, as they stood a little aside from the rest on the platform. I can't quite see what ails her. She looks thinner than when we came, and doesn't seem to know how to smile. Depend upon it, she's going to be ill, or something. I wish you had a pleasanter neighbor, especially as she's likely to be the only one for some time to come. Poor thing, I've neglected her of late, replied Clover penitently. I must make up for it now that you are going away. Really, I couldn't take my time for her while you were here, Rosie and I certainly couldn't let you. I should have resented it highly if you had. Oh, dear, there's that whistle. We really have to go. I hope to the last that something might happen to keep us another day. Oh, dear Clover, I wish we lived nearer each other. This country of ours is a great deal too wide. Geoff, said Clover, as they slowly climbed the hill, I never felt before that the high valley was too far away from people, but somehow I do tonight. It is quite terrible to have Rose go and to feel I may not see her again for years. Did you want to go with her? And leave you? No, dearest, but I am quite sure that there are no distances in heaven, and when we get there we shall find that we are all to live next door to each other. It will be part of the happiness. Perhaps so. Meanwhile I am thankful that my happiness lives close to me now. I don't have to wait till heaven for that, which is the reason, perhaps, that for some years past earth has seemed so very satisfactory to me. Geoff, what an uncommonly nice way you have of putting things, said Clover, nestling her head comfortably on his arm. On the whole, I don't think the High Valley is so very far away. End of chapter 7 Recording by Ellie October 2009